E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Summer Wolf of Indie Wineries on the show today. Hello, how are you? I'm great, Levy. How are you? Nice to see you. Thank you. You too. So you're, you lived a lot in New York when you were a kid. I lived a lot on the end of Long Island when I was a kid, but I only lived in the city um, for about a little less than a year in my 20s, and I was born upstate New York. And what was Long Island like? I grew up in the Hamptons, which used to be a really cool little fishing village almost. There were the few big famous names that came out there every now and then, and there was some old money, but it was really a local scene. And in the winter, it was, you know, everything closed down. In the summer, the population got a little bigger, but it was nothing like it is now. So it was, it was pretty cool. It was a great little town to grow up in. The beaches were great. Best, most beautiful beaches, I still think, ever. But back in the day, you could find parking, which was pretty cool. <laughs> now you need to be up at 5 a.m. or so to, to get to the beach. So it's changed quite a bit. It's, it's incredible. What was your family like? So mom was born on a farm upstate and dad in Queens. And uh, we were kind of the uh, outsiders of the Hamptons. Um, we moved out there. There was nobody had heard of organic food, I don't think. So my mom was the first person to uh, get together with some lady friends and bring in uh, what they called a the big truck. It was a co-op. They got together and they ordered once a month a bunch of, they had to order in bulk, flour, sugar, and then, you know, furkies rather than cookies, organic cheese, I think Snapple even back in the day was part of it. Um, Made so from I was, the best stuff on earth. Yes. You know. <laughs> I was a kid who had the weird lunchbox in school all the time. Everyone else had a brownie and a bagel and cream cheese. And I had, you know, wheat bread with sprouts and tuna fish, cheddar cheese, homemade cookies, all sorts of uh, homemade things, odds and adds vegetables and, instead of Twinkies. So, but uh, that's something that I'm incredibly thankful now. And obviously that followed me because I ended up going to Boulder. When I graduated high school, which there, there was plenty of organic and hippie moms running around. Felt right at home there. You went there for college? I did. Apparently, apparently I was in college there. <laughs> I knew the bar scene really well. I was deep in the restaurant business, uh, but I did. I studied psychology, which actually serves me every day now working with producers. How'd you get involved with restaurants? I started working in restaurants when I was 13. I think I lied about my age. I think I said I was 14 because it was a little Italian restaurant in East Hampton called Il Monastero, which is not there anymore. And uh, it was owned by an Italian. So obviously 
you know, I don't think he looked at any sort of documents or anything. So I started busing tables there in the summers and loved it. Just jumped right in there. Loved food. I loved, loved everything about it. And I think, again, I started waiting tables at 17 rather than 18. You're supposed to be 18 to serve liquor. And took that with me to college. I just I got into the food and wine scene out there. Well, I guess food scene out there. The Dave Quarry restaurants. I started Zolo and Jack's. Um, and Who's Boulder. Dave Quarry? He's a restaurateur in Boulder that started with like a taco stand, I think. And then his first restaurant was Southwestern. And now he's got that kind of the market cornered there in Boulder and Denver. Um, it was a great group to work for. I learned a ton. I was able to work in the kitchen and did kind of front of the house, back of the house, everything there is to do in the restaurant and just loved it. He was great. He gave uh, a lot of opportunities to his employees, which was cool. And it was there that I kind of first started dipping my toes into wine. There were some great managers that allowed me to sit down on tastings and this whole new world that I had never experienced, which was very cool. That opened my eyes. And then studied a semester in Florence. Once again, went there to study, so to speak, but got more um, eating and drinking done. And that, that just, it just kept evolving with the, the love and passion of, of wine there. And that was the 90s or? That was, let's see, 1998. Yeah. And I came back and graduated again, so they tell me. And then, uh, I stayed in the restaurant business. I just I kept going, thinking that I wanted to have a restaurant when I grew up. And so that took me to Charleston, South Carolina, for a couple of years, where I managed a few restaurants down there. And that's where uh, the first wine list fell in my lap. Oh, okay. How'd that happen? There was some sort of drama one night at one of the restaurants, and the manager quit and said, I'm out of here. And somebody literally just handed me the wine list and said, oh, this is yours now. And that, to me, was like, you know, the best thing that ever happened. So that's where it really started. And there... There was a rep that, a wine rep that came in and tasted with him one day. And he said, you know, a really nice palate. You got a great palate summer. And I believed him. He could have been full of, you know. But uh, I decided to go up and come back up to New York City and kind of follow that career and focus more in on wine and maybe not own a restaurant when I grew up and, and do the wine thing. And uh, that's where I met Paolo Villela, who was running the show at Bluefin in Times Square, Be Our Guest Restaurants. He gave me a great opportunity of an assistant som there, and I took some classes. And that was kind of the end of that. What were you selling? A lot of uh, wines I didn't know a lot about. <laughs> they have an incredibly, I don't know if they do anymore, but they have an, an expansive wine list, a lot of verticals, Napa verticals. Um, at the time, Paolo was doing a special on Washington wines, which were just coming onto the scene, which is like around 2002, 2003. Believe it or not, there was we were selling also another wine called Les Duiterres, which is one of our wines now. And I'll, I'll never forget that because it was, he was telling me all about them. There's this small little estate in Friuli and this great couple and organic and all these words and terms I hadn't heard before. And it's, it's interesting when I met Les Duiterres eight years later, I recognized that label immediately. It was pretty cool. But yeah, mostly Napa cabs there, I'd say, with some mostly domestics. There was mostly New World and domestics. That was kind of the style back then. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was, uh, I, I, I don't know what's going on there anymore, but at the time it was a pretty hot spot and uh, the more expensive the bottle, the more exciting it was for the consumer. So some uh, back vintage cab was where everyone was going. Now it was a great learning experience because again, the wine list was pages and pages and I was thrown to the wolves, so to speak. So I had to learn quick. It was great. Inventory, doing inventory is probably the best way you can learn about wines, staring at the labels, you know, trying to figure out on French labels what the hell they're talking about and what the 
the AOC is, what the where the vintage is, where the producer is, what the estate name is. All of that's obvious to us now. At the time, was all Arabic to me. Then, what was your next move? I took a gig as a wine director on Long Island for a group of restaurants out there, and uh, it was a steakhouse called Tellers. And they since have since opened a couple more restaurants. Prime, but at the time it was Tellers H two O, the two restaurants I was doing the wine list for. It was, it was an old bank, beautiful restaurant, still there. And uh, again, a lot of Napa cabs. But there I got to really start exploring more into Italian wines, which obviously was my love since my, my stint in uh, Florence. And uh, there, because I was running the show, I was really able to spend a lot of time with the reps. It was, um, they gave me free reign on the wine list, immediately took off White Zinfandel and Santa Margarita and had the biggest Gruner Veltliner section in any steakhouse, I think, on Long Island because I just fell in love with just some of these weird varietals and that are not weird anymore, but at the time I had never had experience with. Got to meet some really, become friends and meet some really cool reps. And once in a while, every now and then, they'd bring me a producer, which I think happens a lot more now, but back then there wasn't, you know, I think I got two or three producer visits my, my entire stint. Because you're in Long Island. Because I'm in Long Island, you have an ice slip, which uh, there, there's an airport, right? It's, <laughs> So they, they brought me, I fell in love with an estate called Felsina, and I was just selling a ton of it and ordering a ton of it. And I think they took pity on me and they brought me the, I think it wasn't the owner, it was a woman named Chiara that worked for the estate. And so she came to visit and say thank you and, you know, taste me the new vintages. And that's when I just, out of nowhere, asked her if I could come do a, a harvest. I was dying. I was trying desperately to figure out a way to get back to Italy. And we emailed back and forth a little. I think it took about six months and... Somehow she said yes. So. <laughs> so what was that like? That was that was brilliant because I um I asked the restaurant if I could go for harvest, of course. And they said, Yeah. I said, I'm gonna, you know, come back with all sorts of knowledge and experience I'm gonna share with the staff and the clients and the wine program's gonna be so much better and so on and so forth. I went, I don't know, in September and just fell in love with the estate, with the people. I think they they were really excited to have me and about a month into it, they asked me I wanted a full-time job, and that was that. <laughs> called, uh, called work and said I wasn't coming back. So I ended up staying there for a year, and that was great because it was my first experience at a winery. I'm growing up in East Hampton. The wine scene out there on Long Island wasn't really happening yet. And although I was born upstate, same thing. There were some wineries, but nothing that I was in touch with. And uh, so it was great. I got to, to see the other side of it for the first time, and at Felsine at the time, I was thinking I was at this very small family-owned estate, which in retrospect, obviously, you know, they had an enologist and a export manager, and then they had a cellar master, and then they had an agronomist and manager. And then, so there was all these different roles, and I just kind of assumed that was the case in, in all wineries and most wineries. I didn't, I didn't have enough experience to know that, that that was not actually a small winery. That was a pretty medium to large-sized estate. So it was a great experience because when I was there too, they started evolving a little bit more. They had a, a French gentleman that worked there and he was the only other person living there. There was two of us in this little town called Castanuova Beradenga, um, the only American. I think the town's probably 120 people on a good day. So him and I became quick friends because he was the other outsider. And he kind of talked the owners into testing out some biodynamic work in the vineyards. I think they gave him a vineyard. He got a horse. And that was my first experience with that, too. I'd never heard the word, and he introduced me to Steiner, and it was, it was great. I mean, it was just, it was, I learned more in that year than I did probably my four years of college. Don't tell my mom that. 
What did that look like? He was uh, teaching me about dynamizing crystal powder, and he did a lot of treatments in the vineyards. I mean, I learned about Cinquecento 500, 501. But at the time, I don't remember. Most of the work that he did was, I don't think he made his own 500 or 501 at that point. So it was more about this whole concept of working the vineyards with the horse rather than tractors and teaching me about the crystal. I remember a lot. That was kind of what opened my eyes is just using a little bit of this ground up crystal, essentially, if the, if the vintage was an off vintage and there wasn't enough sun or maturity in the grapes, you just needed a little bit of this to dynamize in the water and you could spray that on the plants and, you know, showing me the amount of this powder that you actually used for however many hectares it was, two or three hectares was just, it was, inc- it was amazing. It just opened my eyes to this whole new, this whole new world and just tried to get my hands on as many books as I could translate into English and it's tough reading. It's not <laughs> even the translated or it's tough reading, but it was still fascinating. And uh, he left kind of at the same time I did. So I never really got to see much of his work come to fruition because he started and see, I never tasted those wines that were made in that vineyard. And I don't actually know if they ever got bottled separately, but. So you're there about a year and then what happens? Then I, um, I kind of realized that it was a family owned estate and it was kind of, there wasn't a lot from, they already had an export manager. There wasn't a lot of places for me to go other than doing a little bit of PR and the visits when Americans came. And I got to travel around Europe a little bit and do some of their marketing and wine fairs. But it just felt like I was going to kind of hit a, hit a ceiling sooner or later. So I moved back to New York after a year and took a job for Sockland. What was that like? That was crazy. It was, it was, it was a totally flip-flop experience. I went from being outside every day in, uh, in the hills of, of Tuscany to working in a cubicle, which I actually, I thought I'd hate, but I, it, turned, it was great. I loved that job. Was selling wines, was selling wines that I had never tasted. You know, we're talking about high point wines, first growth Bordeaux, DRCs, important Burgundies, all sorts of wines that, you know, I had a couple of on the list that I worked with, but they were, we were selling to you know Wall Street essentially, and it was all via internet. So it was really interesting that you know I never I got to create relationships with these with these buyers that some of them I'm still friends with, and I've since become friends completely outside of the. Uh, of the email world, we actually see each other face to face. But you know, for the two years I worked there, I had these relationships with these buyers. It became great friends and selling them based on price and points. But that was, uh, it was a great learning experience because it was a whole world of wines that I had not met yet. And that's kind of what I think though drove me back to Italy. Oh, how so? I found myself in a cubicle in the middle of Long Island one beautiful summer day in a building that didn't have any windows and kind of thought, uh, how am I doing? <laughs> a couple of years ago, I was running around Tuscany. So I called a girlfriend of mine and I just said, I'm, I, I'm out of here. I gotta, I can't do this. And I, I miss that kind of hands-on thing. So uh, a couple of months later, I moved back to Tuscany and uh, started working with a girlfriend of mine who's another expat, but she'd been living in Italy since she was 13. So she's, she's more uh, Italian than she's American now. She, she suffers sometimes when she tries to speak English. It's pretty funny. But she was doing custom wine and gourmet travel. So I thought, oh, that sounds great. I'm going to bring tourists around and bring them to wineries. And we're talking about food. And it turned out to totally not be my gig. But while I was doing this, I was still selling wines to my clients through Sockland. They, they allowed me to go remote in Tuscany. So that was pretty cool. And while I was doing that, I kind of started discovering 
how much easier it was for me to sell wines when I had gone to the estate and visited. And so I was selling wines that Southland already had, but they were some of the more the more obscure wineries of Southland, some of the smaller Italian, northern Italian and Tuscan Italian estates. Or an Alaya. It's not small necessarily, but it wasn't, you know, a first growth Bordeaux per se. And so I was able with Amy to go to these estates with these clients, but also kind of use it to to help my my sales with Sockland. And at that point, uh, that fall, we went up north to go to the Slow Food uh, Salone de Gusto. And that's when Gambara Rosso and Slow Food were still together. So the Trebiquere was something that was one big event. And we stayed in an um, agroturismo of a friend of hers that she had met a couple in Italy's earlier, who was a tiny producer that she kept telling me about named Fabrizio Yuli. And so we went up to stay in this agroturismo and go to this wine fair. And it was my second time in Piedmont and uh, totally bewitched by that place. It's just gorgeous. In the Monferrato. Yeah, it was this time we were in Monferrato. The first time I went to Piedmont, it was in Barbaresco. But when we drove, when we landed, the first time I went was in the falls in November. And it was just, you know, that foggy, perfect, colorful season. And it just seems like this crazy, mysterious place that's got stuck in time. So when I was working at Felsina, this time we landed in Monferrato, but again, it was fall. And so it was, that's its season there. I mean, that's Piedmont season. So kind of was just in already just feeling totally high on the, on the surroundings and the place. And we met Fabrizio and I tasted his wines for the first time and just couldn't, I just spent, I don't know if you've, taste of the wine, you spend the entire night trying to figure out. I don't even know if you know if you like it at first because your palate's just so surprised by what it just tasted. You know, this, how is this Barbera? Before that, I tasted Barbera mostly from the Lange. I hadn't tasted a lot of Barbera from Monferrato, if any. So I just kind of kept going back to this glass and trying to figure out what was going on with this Barbera. It was so vertical. It was so acidic. It was not this fruit bomb that I was kind of used to. And more and more intrigued. And as I kept tasting through his wines, I, I was kind of falling deeper and deeper in love and in, with, these, with these wines. And, uh, I guess also with the person I later found out, but at the time it was just the wines. Because you're married now. Yeah, yeah, we're married. <laughs> End up getting uh, getting hitched and had a kid together. But that was uh, 2008, so that was seven years ago. And so, yeah, so I was blown away about these wines. I just, and then it took a little while to sink in because, again, I was kind of bewitched by, by Piedmont. And we, we left, went back to Tuscany, and later on that Vinitaly, that spring, we went and I met Fabrizio's uh, five, five buddies that he shared a stand with at Vinitaly. And they were calling themselves the Grupo. Five wineries and tasted through these wines, met these people and was just completely like, blown away again and again by these people and these wines and their stories and so on and so forth. And, you know, kind of asking what, you know, where do you guys sell these wines? Who are you selling with? And all I kept thinking over and over again is I got to get these wines with my people. And my people being my clients at Sockland, being my friends and family, being anybody I knew in the, in the business just because I knew that they'd be as intrigued and blown away by these wines as I was. And I kept hearing the same story over and over again that they, you know, either they'd never sold outside the U.S. because they didn't really know how to, or they had and they had gone with a big importer that I, I think their wines just kind of got lost in the book. And not even that they were looking for particular numbers, but their wines just didn't, didn't get sold. They just kind of sat there. So that's when I tried to find my original plan was try to find these guys importers. So I had a bunch of contacts from when I was a wine buyer and reached out and wrote emails and had this whole you know presentation of these wines and these, these winemakers and their stories and got rejection after rejection after rejection. <laughs> oh, people weren't feeling it. They were feeling it. They're like, I don't know these wines. And I said, yeah, exactly. It's, isn't that exciting? They, you don't know these wines. Nobody's tasted them. You've never tasted anything like it. And yeah, over and over again, rejected. And finally... The grupo, this group of winemakers, kind of just said, well, you know, 
why don't you just do it? And I thought, okay, I'm not an importer. I can't do that. I've never, I'd never dreamed of doing something like that. So what I did start doing is selling these wines. I created a page on Sockland's website, which they allowed me to do called Summer's Indie Wines and started blogging about their stories and their wines and selling their wines to my clients that way through my list of Sockland clients. And that went incredibly well. The clients really responded to them because they were totally different price points and they were used to paying on the, of the other wines that Sockland's selling. So that went incredibly well. And we were selling, you know, pallets of wines, whereas they were selling pallets of wines in, over a course of five years. And so that kind of took off without me realizing it. And uh, at the same time, I had two friends that were starting distribution in two states that they were ex-colleagues, ex-friends, one in Colorado, one in Pennsylvania. And Indy, I, I you know, shared their, my wines with them and this group of, I think at the time we were seven wineries, shared these wines with them and both of them were super excited and the artisan seller in Pennsylvania and the natural wine company in Colorado opened their books with, with indie wineries. So at that point, that's when I realized, all right, this is working. <laughs> now what? So I found, uh, I was introduced to Tim Melantony, who's a logistics provider and managed to start bringing in wines through him. And before I realized that I was actually importing, which <laughs> wasn't, wasn't in the cards, I didn't think, but it uh, started working, started working really well. And, great response to the wines. I mean, I was going out there knocking on doors and telling these people stories and tasting the wines and the few buyers I was able to get to, their responses were always incredible. I mean, I got these long emails from some of the buyers just saying it was the best tasting they'd ever had. And, you know, they felt like they knew these winemakers after I'd gone and tasted with them. So that gave me uh, some inspiration to keep going because it was hard. I was living in Piedmont with Fabrizio by that time, but trying to sell wine in New York, which, you know, it's hard if you live here, let alone if you're on the other side of the ocean. What's it like living in Piemonte compared to here? I mean, what were some of the differences that were apparent to you as you settled in? The biggest difference living in Piedmont is the the pace. And not just the obvious pace of life, but, you know, just something as simple as trying to find different ingredients in the grocery store. I mean, you still can't find any ethnic food in any grocery store there. They have an incredible, rich culture and history and it's the reason people keep going back to Italy is to go experience that. And it, it's not changing, which is a great thing. But at the same time, if you live there, you feel that. So as a tourist, you go there to these towns, these hills in Piedmont and to Tuscany, and it's like it has not been touched by time. And that's what's so intriguing about this place and keeps people coming back. And you feel like you're in a history book or in a movie. But when you live there, it's, it's a different experience because you, you want something that's open 24 hours a day every now and then. And you need somebody to be able to deliver you dinner especially when all of a sudden you have children and you're trying to work, <laughs> that helps a lot. Or you just don't want to eat pasta one day. And that, that, uh, that's hard. <laughs> I spent the first year living with Fabrizio, we, I think, eating pasta twice a day, every day. It's, I mean, it's, it's really hard to get outside of their routine that they've been doing for centuries, really. I mean, his parents are from the small village we live in, which has 100 people in it. And when I asked his father one time, I said, well, where are you from? And he looked at me like I was crazy. What do you mean from here? There's no before that. You know, they've always been from there. So I guess, yeah, the biggest challenge for me coming from New York is just that kind of diversity and being able to run out and grab something at the store. I mean, they clo everything closes down at lunchtime from 12 to 3. You can't do anything. The bureaucracy is insane. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> I just became legal last year. Before that, I was having to go come back and forth every three months. But just getting something like a visa is, they, they change the rules every day. You go to the office, they tell you to, and they say, ah, oh, rules changed last night. So everything you brought to the office there, no joke, 
they tell you, yeah, they, I just got an email and now you need this paper. I mean, it's, it's, it's taken me a year to collect all the documents that I've needed to to get the, the visa and it's, it's ridiculous. It's kind of like a third world country in that, in that sense. And the Italians are the first ones to kind of say it's a third world country in many ways in that, in that sense. It's just, but there's the beautiful side of it, which is like I said, I mean, just they hug so closely their culture and their, their cuisine and they're so proud. And they're also, it's a really, I mean, Italians are just, they're so friendly and they're so happy to have anybody come visit them. And they mean it when they tell you to come visit, they mean it as Americans. We tend to be somewhat flaky and yeah, come, come see me anytime. And I don't know if we really mean it all the time. But there, when they say that, they do mean it. And they do expect you to just show up without calling, which people still do. They don't call or text. They just show right up at your house, which is hard for a New Yorker as well. <laughs> the village that you live in, is it all winemakers in the village? I mean, is it the surrounding domains, or how does it work? It's funny. Fabrizio is the only winemaker in the village. And Monferrato, it, up until the 60s, was an incredibly prolific winemaking area. I mean, they had, it was a royal wine. It was, the king was in Torino. And all of the hillsides that are now covered in forests were one-time terrace vineyards. And you can see in the wintertime when it snows, you can still see all the terraces. Um, but they had three consecutive years of hail in the 60s. And it just at the time, people, it was all about quantity. And they needed, they were making their living off of that. And after losing three vintages in a row, they just couldn't do it any t anymore. And at the same time, um, Fiat was opening up in Torino. So there was this mass exodus of, of the countryside, really. And everybody moved to Torino and vineyards were abandoned and... So it's, it's really sad in a way, but also Fabrizio is very lucky because the vineyard that kind of inspired him to start making wine with a label on it and, and exporting and selling it outside the family restaurant is because they had a family restaurant. So when everyone else abandoned their vineyard, Grandpa kept his because they needed the wine for the restaurant. So we have a vineyard from 1930 that we're still making wine from, which is really rare in the area. I mean, they exist, but there's not a lot because, again, most of them were abandoned. So yeah, in the village, we're 100 people. Fabrizio is the only winemaker. There's probably... Four or five other families that have tiny little patches of vineyards that make family wine. But uh, I was uh, just telling somebody yesterday that it's it's crazy though. Fabrizio's a winemaker. He's in the village. He'd sell anybody in the village wine, bulk in a bottle, however they want. But people still go to the grocery store and buy uh, the big jugged wine from uh, the, the valley. You know, the the Cavet, that kind of. <laughs> so it's it's hard to get people to think outside of what they're used to. And wine should cost three euros. So before Fabrizio, no one was labeling and bottling the wine that was being sold at the restaurant. Yeah, I think they actually, they had a label on it, but it was one of those labels you can kind of pick out from a book. So it had the family's name on it and some kind of generic design. There's one bottle left that we have in the living room. So they were bottling it and labeling it, so to speak, with a different label, but yeah, just for the restaurant. And um, the thing that kind of caught Fabrizio's attention is when he, as he grew up, he grew up working in the restaurant. He had, I think he started helping mom when he was probably as soon as he could walk. And then he started, in his 20s, he started bringing in some other wines to the wine list. It was, the restaurant got pretty well known and it was slow food awarded and his mom did everything for 50 years from grow the vegetables and um, go out and pick the greens that day for the salads. So Fabrizio started bringing in, you know, having kind of a wine list that wasn't just their wine. But he realized regardless, people would come in, they'd order his wine and it was always the bottle that was finished at the end of the night. So he'd look at the table and they'd had ordered other wines, but it was that wine from that vineyard was always empty and it was always the first one to go. And he kind of at that point realized there was something special about that vineyard and decided that he was going to be a winemaker when he grew up, which he, I guess he grew up when he was around 30 because that's when he started uh, planting new vineyards and uh, taking, renting some other vineyards that there were in the town and, and bringing those back to life. And 
he started his first label was actually Rosore, which is now his middle-aged Barbera, but at the time that was uh, the one that he put the old vines into. What's the range of production today? In a good year, when our estate fruit, we can make 45,000 bottles. But we've since found some vineyards that, organic vineyards nearby that we can rent because thankfully the demand for our entry-level wine has gone up and we've opened up some new markets around the world, which is super exciting. So we can get up to probably 60 now with those new vineyards when those come into production. And it's mostly Barbera? Barbera and Fabrizio also makes Pinot Noir and Nebbiolo. Planted Pinot Noir in 1999. He loves the wines of Burgundy on the north side of the estate. So the south side is full south facing and that's where all the Barbera is. On the north side he he pulled up a Barbera vineyard and planted a hectare of Pinot Noir. And that's become become one of his his best-selling wines, especially in Italy. It hasn't really caught on as much in the U.S. market, but in Italy because it's so unique. I mean, it's such a Burgundian style. So cliche to say so, but it's such a Burgundian style Pinot Noir coming out of Italy that people are really drawn to it, especially, you know, the old school wine drinkers. And then we have a vineyard of Nebbiolo, which he just started bottling on its own, which I'm super proud of because uh, there's not many people treating Nebbiolo in Monferrato like he is. So we're kind of in the middle between the mountain Nebbiolo and the Langa Nebbiolo and the expression of the Nebbiolo, his Nebbiolo is just that. I mean, it's got some of the balsamic notes that are in the Lange, but it's also got some of that spiciness that the Mountain Nebula has and a little bit lighter in body and color. So it's really kind of exactly middle of the road, what you'd expect from Monferrato, if you were to look at it geographically speaking. And it's also, he's, you know, just releasing the, the 10s release, he's just releasing the 11. So, you know, he's on schedule with Barbaresco. And so it's pretty, I'm proud of him. It's gorgeous. It's not to be compared to Barbaresco or Barolo or Mountain Nebula. It's its own animal, but it's, he did a really great job. The vineyard was planted in 2001, so it's just starting to kind of grow up and become, say, important enough to be, to be bottled on its own because before that he was blending it with Barbera and give it a little more structure. And then the Barberas that he makes as just straight Barbera, is that designed to age or is that designed to be something to drink right away? For Fabrizio, the difference all really lies in the age of the vineyards. So the, all of them, I mean, I've tasted Umberta that's five years old, ten years old, and it's still gorgeous. But he makes three Barberas, 100% Barbera, and the entry-level one is the youngest vineyards. Then the middle Barbera is the middle-aged 30 to 40-year-old vineyards, and then he has, of course, the old vineyard, Grandpa's Vineyard. And that Barbera is absolutely meant to age. In fact, it's, for me, it's only meant to be drank when it's aged. In 2004, he did a separate bottling that had a really high level of fixed acidity that he just released last year after 10 years in Magnum only. And it, it's still young. It's still a baby. So that's really exciting. But yeah, the, the 2010 is just starting to open up now, I think, is that old vine Barbera. But the six is what I'd, what I'd drink. So, and we, you know, we're lucky. We have a really white soil where we are. And so our Barberas are very vertical, if you will. They're very acidic and they need time. And he doesn't, he doesn't have a fixed uh, formula in the cellar. Every vintage is different. Every vintage ages differently. His entry-level Barbera, is, he's releasing it a year after everybody else's. More or less. And again, that depends on the vintage. But Is that white soil typical to the Monferrato? There it's really, I mean, it is typical, but where we are, he always says that there's this kind of stripe. It doesn't really translate in English as well. It does, it does in Italian, but there's this kind of stripe of white soil right where that runs through our hill that is even more rich in limestone. And so we have an even more acidic Barbera than, than a lot of the other parts of Monferrato. And is there a kind of style to Monferrato Barbera in general compared to Alba or Asti? I wish I could say yes. And, 
you know, when you asked if there were other winemakers in the village, unfortunately they're not because we would, we would welcome more winemakers to come to Monferrato and, and help put Monferrato kind of back on the map and explore its potential again, you know, which once upon a time was there. So there's certainly a, a lot of Monferrato wines out there and you can find them easier now. But I don't even think, personally, I don't think we're at the point where we can even really do a, a great study on that because it did fall off the map for so many years that it's starting to come back. And I think it's, I've done tastings before that's Asti, Alba, and Monferrato. And what I just said, I do find that for me, the, the Monferrato Barbera tends to be a lot more vertical and a little less approachable than the, than the Alba or the Asti Barbera. Uh, it's a little bit more austere. It still has that Barbera fruit that we all love, but it's just, it's got a little bit more of that city, a little bit, it stands up a little bit straighter. It's not as, it's not as friendly right away out of the gate. And who were the friends that Fabrizio was hanging out with that you originally met? Who was the people in the His group? people. <laughs> the grupo. So, um, Natalino Cronioletti from San Lorenzo and Silvana Forte from Le Due Terre. And there was Primos Lavrencic from, he, at the time he was with his family, which was a label called Suter. He's since then done his own label, which is called Buria, like the wind. And who am I forgetting? Martin Arndorfer and Anna Arndorfer from Austria. So, not all Italian. No, no. The, the Arndorfers are, were kind of like the, the black sheep of the group. Um, but the kind of concept was they all had similar philosophy. They had all been burned by the same uh, distributor in Italy that went out of business. So they kind of stuck together after, after that. Arndorfer ended up doing an internship with Fabrizio one year, and they just hit it off great. And Martin, the next year, he was supposed to do an internship with somebody else. And he showed up to that estate the next year and was just making copies, literally sending faxes and making copies. And Fabrizio had him, you know, getting his hands dirty in the vineyard, in the cellar. So he called Fabrizio and just, you know, said, please, can I come back? And... So they just, they started a, a lifelong friendship there. And so Fabrizio brought him into the, to the group. They both, Martin and Anna both come from winemaking families. So they're incredibly talented and their wines were also just gorgeous right out of the gate. But they were by far the youngest of the group. And then there was uh, the Bocchinos, Barolo producers. Um, later on, I had met Pacina in Tuscany and introduced them to the grupo. So she kind of joined the stand one year and as did Nicoletta Bocca from San Fariolo. So the grupo expanded to about seven producers, and then um, then everyone started kind of doing their own thing. But they're all still really good friends, and we work with most of them still. So it was uh, it was sweet, and they were the ones that yeah they were the ones really that launched indie. So that's the early template for the book. Yeah, I thought I had seven producers, and they were they were like, well, you should just stop with us, and <laughs> and that'll be good. And I thought, okay, but you know maybe we'll get to like twenty, twenty five, and it just kind of kept building slowly and slowly. It was great. I never, I never went looking for a wine. I never thought I need Pinot Grigio. I need Amarone. I need it. Just when I met a winemaker or tasted a wine that I fell in love with, and they became part of the family. So, and it's still that way. It's uh, I like things happening organically, kind of and naturally, and letting letting kind of fate decide which which direction that's going to go. And it's always fine when you look too hard for something. You you don't find it. San Lorenzo, that winery is in the Marche. He's in La Marca, yeah. He's my, he's my number one selling estate. He's uh, brilliant. He makes five verdicchios, five. Um, he makes a, a slew of red, red wines as well, but for me, his, his verdicchios obviously is where, where it's at. He makes five different verdicchios, none aged in wood. All are aged in concrete, and the difference is the picking time and the time it's spent on the lease. 
So it's, you literally taste through these five radicchios and you feel like you're tasting five different, completely different wines. It's, it's a really interesting lesson. It's for me, one of the most undervalued and uh, underappreciated grapes in Italy and, and maybe in the old wine world as well. I mean, I think you've tasted his 1998 Il San Lorenzo Radicchio that's... 97 too. Good for you, yeah. It's a wine I like. Yeah, <laughs> it's they're mind-blowing. That was, I remember when I tasted that, I, that was another wine I just kept going back to over and over again. I just couldn't figure it out. And yeah, he's, uh, the 2002 was just about to be released. Oh, so. cool. He doesn't release nor he doesn't make it every year. So he, the 2001 was the last vintage we had. And then 2002 is going to be coming in this fall. Where is he located in the market exactly? Is he... He's about an hour from the sea. He's really near Conero. He's in Monte Carotto in a little village. He's also, he's not the only winemaker in his little village. There's other winemakers there, but he's kind of the guy. He's the main guy. And he's been farming organically and biodynamically for, since he started in, really in the 90s as well, since he took over from dad. And a lot of his neighbors have since seen his vineyards and what they're doing in, in stressful vintages, whether it be hail or too much rain. I mean, this year, last year, this year he lost four acres due to landslides. Last year he got rained on, but he still, he manages to, you know, bring in a different quality than his neighbors do. And he's since kind of converted slowly his neighbors to farming differently. And I don't know that they're certified yet, but they're, they're asking Adelino for advice. They're asking him for help. They're seeing that, that what his, his vineyards, how they're reacting to this stress is completely different than their own. And so he's been, he's been a really important person for the region. And he's somebody, if you go to the Marque, everybody knows. And he's got some sparkling projects happening right now in the cellar. I'm excited to see what's going what's gonna to go on there. But he's, he's another producer. Or he's one of many of my producers where I don't even necessarily think about tasting the wine when it's released before bringing it in. I just, his quality is so right on. I mean, there's so, there's the vintage variants that we love. That's what we love about these small producers, right? But there's, I've never had a vintage of his where I've been even slightly in any way worried or thinking that the market was going to not have the same response to it as they did the year before. It's vintage after vintage. It's just it's incredible quality. He manages to get out there and bring in this fruit that's beautiful. So he also makes an Il San Lorenzo red. What's the basis of that? He found this, he found this vine growing in the, in the forest next to one of his vineyards and, uh, he grafted it and he brought it in also just to try to figure out what it was. And the closest relative, or he tells the story, the closest relative they can find to it is Syrah. Um, but it's not Syrah. So they don't have a name for it yet. And we're, it's Il San Lorenzo Rosso. It's a IGT. And I think you tasted that wine as well. I mean, it just creates this incredibly spicy, wild wine that I think wild's probably the best descriptor I can think of for that wine. It's not Syrah. I don't find it as, as heavy as, as a Syrah would be, especially from that region. But he, the first time I even knew about it was just a couple of years ago. It's, he's got all these kind of hidden projects in his cellar that he always comes out with something new that you didn't know was going on. He's a mad scientist. So as you expanded the book, how far did it expand and what kind of cues were you thinking about as the book got bigger? When I started indie, I didn't have a business plan. I don't think I've ever had a business plan. It all just really happened serendipitous happenstance. I don't know, organically, naturally. And so the growth of the book has kind of happened in that same in that same way. You meet people like Jay and Christine. They're two, they fill many roles now with Indy, but they're our distributors in Arizona. They own the, I think it's the only natural wine restaurant, in, certainly in Tempe, in Phoenix area. It's a beautiful wine list, incredible restaurant, and they're two of the hardest working people I know. She's Croatian growing up. She grew up in Canada. 
And so they have a summer house in Croatia, and they go every year to Croatia. And when they contacted me, I'm actually looking for San Fariolo wines. And so we started working together, and they've become a great, a great client and great friends, moreover. And then they started talking to me about Slovenian and Croatian wines. And I went a couple summers ago to vacation in Croatia, and they brought a bunch of samples over, and we just started kind of tasting through. And I was blown away by, by things that they had sourced. And so, you know, all of a sudden we have Slovenian and Croatian portfolio that they're managing and you know, sourcing these great wines and we taste together and then decide which ones work and which ones don't. And so it's grown into that, to that region of the world, which is really exciting. And it was, we had a success that we were not expecting at all. And since then, we've also grown into Spain a little bit, very slowly, but we have a couple Spanish uh, wineries now because, again, we have another really dear friend that lives in Madrid and he's in the wine world and he started just finding these great gems, Escoda, Parco del Corneto, Verdejo, some wines that he brought to me that again I was just blown away, and so I said, "Okay, it's not necessarily me looking for the to push the the portfolio in a direction, but the, the things that happen naturally that come to me or seem to to fit the right and everything's timing, right? So it's it's got to be the right time too. We've had different opportunities in New Zealand and other parts of the world, but it just it wasn't the right time, and so it's got to be the right fit. And also, you know, anything that grows too fast is not good. You've got to be aware of whether it be in the ground or a business or relationship, it's slow is better in, in all aspects, I think. And you had a friendship with a British wine importer. Yeah, Cav, Cav de Perrin. So Eric Naru is the founder and owner of Cav in England. He's actually French by birth, and he was a professional rugby player. He had a very interesting, colorful past, and wonderful person, great man. And he met his wife, Anna, I believe at Ornalaya. She was the analogist there and what is now his wife, and she's Australian. And they fell in, the wa- fell in love with Etna on vacation one year, and they've since, uh, they have a winery called Vino Diana in, on Etna that we work with. But he, so he does that, and then he's got this distribution and importation in England, which they've just got an absolute gorgeous portfolio. And they had a gentleman Italian that was working for them in England named Christian Bucci. And about... Eight years ago, he decided to move, or maybe a little less, seven years ago, he decided to move back to Italy and take Cav to Italy. So he took some of the book with him to Italy and then sourced his own wineries and expanded the book kind of in the direction he wants to go. So they share a lot of the same wineries, but not necessarily the, the entire, not the same exact book, and which has become, for me, by far the, the best distribution, natural wine distribution in, in Italy. It's great. So... They're there. We share a lot of the same wineries, so it's fun. I, you know, I go to his events, and we have a lot of our indie people there, and vice versa. What's the natural wine scene like in Italy today? He's kind of got that. <laughs> he's kind of got that market cornered. There's, you know, AAA, and there was definitely a couple that came before him, but he's kind of just taken hold of the marketplace because he's done it a little bit smarter and with the right. I think the right group, and I think he came in at again timing is everything. He came at a time when Italy was finally ready for French wines. When I was at Felsina, for example, when we got to eat, there was not Piedmont on the list, let alone French wines. I mean, I think there was one little shop in Siena that had an Opus 1 bottle that I couldn't believe it. And it was the only time I saw any wine outside of Tuscany there. And now, you know, you're finding more and more all of the wine shops and the restaurants are getting heavier and heavier in the French selections. And Spain, not so much, but definitely French. And so he's got definitely the best selection of French wines and champagne portfolio that they're there is in Italy and everybody now is hungry for that. And they're starting to think a little bit outside the box and it's great. People are really starting to drink not only outside their region, but outside their country. 
So I think sometimes, in, in a lot of ways, Italy's, I think, sometimes ahead of, the, ahead of the curve in the natural wine scene, but then other times I come back to New York, and I think there's always this, you know, in New York, there's wines from all over the world, right? So we're competing with wines not only from France, but from the New World, whereas in Italy, there's no Chilean wines, there's no Australian wines, there's no, there's no New World wines yet. So it's different. It's still easier, let's say because you're just kind of focused mainly on domestic wines and, and French and a little bit outside of that. So what's it like to sell your portfolio in New York? It was really hard at first. It was really hard because 2009, 2010, when we were just getting started, it was, I think the turnover, the turnover's pretty high here in New York in terms of wine buyers and, and psalms. But, it, and I did the same thing when I was a wine buyer. If I didn't recognize any labels in a portfolio, it was, it was hard for me to even know where to start. And so that was really the biggest challenge. We didn't have a ringer winery. We didn't start with, you know, we have this one big name that's going to get us in the door because everybody knows that blah, blah, blah winery. No, we started <laughs> the hard way from scratch with, I think Le Due Terre was our biggest name. And still there was a small handful of old school Italian Psalms that remembered Le Due Terre from when she was with her older importer. But it was, it was really hard in the beginning, but slowly but surely it's gotten easier and the greatest thing happened to me this spring, kind of the most exciting thing that since I've started Indy, I think, I walked into, uh, we have a great Italian rep now named Rosanna, and I walked into a shop in Brooklyn with her, and she said, oh, the shop just opened, we got to go in here, I want to, I've been talking to them, and she had her bag of wines, and we had Umberto, which is Fabrizio's and she little Barbera in there, and the owner happened to be in there, which was great, and we walked in, and she said, hi, I'm Rosanna, this is Summer, she's the owner of Indy, blah, blah, and she kept going, and he said, excuse me, and she said, Indy, and she threw out her card, and he said, I've never heard of you guys. Fine, great. And so she started pulling out wines and he saw Yuli and he pointed to Yuli and he said, oh, you guys have Yuli, which I thought, how awesome is that? Because he doesn't, has no clue who Indy is, but he knows Yuli and Yuli was introduced for the first time in New York with Indy. So that was, I was so proud of that, that, you know, Yuli had brand recognition in the, in the marketplace by this new little shop. So it means that we're doing something right, I guess. And what do you foresee as the next moves? At this point, we have uh, about 10 states that we sell in. 10 to 12 states other than uh, New York. And I think that I'm, I'm really happy with that. I don't really want to expand too much because our winemakers only make a certain amount of wines. There's not enough to go around for the entire country. So that's kind of a, a relief in one hand and exciting because I can just kind of expand and, and work on the markets we have. In terms of New York, it's really about finding the right team of people to sell the wines and represent the wines. And I think we finally found that, which is great too. Definitely some regions of the world I'd love to explore. I'd love to, to learn more about German wines and get to Germany. My family's from there, so it'd be cool to, to learn a little bit more about Germany. But that's uh, got to be after baby number two, I think. <laughs> and then there's some new world regions that are interesting to us. Chile's really interesting. Uh, there's some cool things happening down there. So it's kind of following the natural and kind of the wine scene that, that we're following is kind of springing up around the world. And I know there's some cool things happening in Australia as well, and it's just a matter of the right time and finding time to get there. There's, there's not an estate in the book I haven't been to visit personally, and so it's really important for me. I mean, the winemaker can tell you whatever he wants. You need to go there and see the vineyards and see what they're doing. So finding the time to personally, physically get to all these places, also it's, it's not easy. So Sounds like it's pretty much grown through different friend groups, meeting different friends. and Yeah, 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 for sure. That's, I think, some of the most successful businesses and companies I've been a part of are businesses that have grown that way. Friends of friends, contacts of people that you already love. And I mean, there's nothing better than getting a reference from somebody that's your, your best employee. I mean, that's the person 
that you want to replicate, right? That's the person you want. You want their opinion of who you should bring in. So and that's a great, it's a great model. You know, ask the, ask the people that you respect the most if they know people that they respect in terms of whether it be winemakers or sales agents or whatever, distributors, clients. I mean, that's a great way to find new clients too. I think, you know, it's, it's your favorite restaurant to go to. It's your favorite wine shop to shop at when you're not at yours, that sort of thing. Summer Wolf of Indy Winery, she's been asking people she knows if they know other people she should know. <laughs> Thank you very much for being here today. Thanks, Lovey. Summer Wolf of Indy Wineries. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.